0: Well, good morning. Let's uh, go ahead and open up our Bibles to Philippians chapter one it I'll be on page 980 in a blue pew Bible. would love for you to follow along with us there if you do not have your own. Um, but we are very much looking forward to this, uh, what will be nine weeks in a sermon series, digging into Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Um, One of the reasons why uh, we cut our fall series, our vision series that we do every fall, uh, we cut it down to just two weeks this year. And the reason why, um, well, partly I just really want to get started with this series as soon as possible, Um, but just really excited for what God has for us. But in some ways, this uh, letter of the Church of Philippi will be um, an extension of our vision series. Um, we spent one week, if you were here a couple weeks ago, on why we exist as a church, what, why are we here, what's our purpose, what's our vision. Uh, we spent a second week on how we accomplish that, how's that going to look like here. And, and now we get this kind of nine week case study of what a healthy church looks like. Not a perfect church, that doesn't exist, not then, not now, but a healthy church. Because you see, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, to this faith community is the most joy-filled letter you will find in the Bible, written by Paul. And and the reason, as we'll find out as we begin to unpack it, is not because he was in such a great place or he was in such a great circumstance, because, as we'll find, he's writing this from prison, writing this as an inmate. But it's joy-filled because of the reports he is hearing about this church and you almost get the feeling, I think as, as I'm studying and reading it, I think as we read it together, uh, that you, he could not write this letter fast enough. Like Paul gets a lot of um, flack for just kind of being linear and boring and archaic, and, but he has got a lot of emotion in him, and it kind of spills out onto the page in this letter. And, and it's just going to be a great opportunity for us as a church to learn from a healthy church. If you think about across your life, there's two ways you can learn from somebody or from a group of people. Um, One is uh, somebody serves as an example of what to do, or they serve as an example of what not to do, right? Both good and bad examples can be effective life teachers. Let me illustrate it this way. Uh, I am the youngest sibling in my family. Uh, Now, there are pros and cons to having older siblings growing up. Who else are the youngest sibling in here? You're the youngest sibling in your family. All right, I see you, I see you. Um, it's got pros and cons. I have all older brothers, three older brothers. So a lot of my cons include a steady, steady dose of beatdowns that began at an early age, uh, being the one who gets body slammed into the couches and the coffee tables. Um, but one very important pro is that I got to watch my three older brothers go through things in life before I did. And very early on, I figured out, oh, I should pay attention to this. Because where they are is where I will be in a little while. And, and for the most part, uh, I'm fortunate that I had three older brothers that I still respect and look up to. Um, figuratively, of course, I'm now taller than all of them. Thank you very much. Um, but I also benefited from seeing many mistakes growing up and learning okay, I'm not going to do that. And to spare them, I will give no specifics. Um, But someone once said, a wise person learns from their own mistakes, but a very wise person learns from the mistakes of others. And Paul's compilations of letters, if you had all Paul's letters to the churches, um, there are some where we learn what not to do. Churches like the church at Corinth or Galatia, you find out pretty quick, okay, we should not be doing this. But then there are churches where we read and we learn that they serve an example of very much what we should do, and that is the church at Philippi. And I would say both can be effective teachers. It's a little bit more enjoyable seeing a good example. And so as we begin to walk through this letter, um, be encouraged, church, that um, while there are a lot of differences of Ridgewood in 2019, And Philippi in about 60 AD, it's a different country, it's a different millennium, different culture, different people. While that's all true, we have the same gospel, and we have the same Savior, and we're going to find that is more than enough to overpower all the cultural differences that we'll notice. But we're going to cover just 11 verses this morning. Uh, which serves as Paul's kind of extended introduction to this letter. And we're going to see four things, if you're taking notes, four things this morning. Um, Paul's greeting, Paul's gratitude, Paul's joy, and then finally, Paul's prayer. So we'll go a couple verses at a time. Philippians 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Number one, Paul's greeting. Um, as many of you know, uh, the greetings in the New Testament are some of the most overlooked verses in our Bible. That we kind of just read them, just read them, and then get beyond them. And I think one of the reasons we do that is because we treat greetings that way in our correspondence. If you look at most of your greetings and the way you write to others, they're pretty indifferent. Uh, we're obviously not writing many letters now, but if you think about emails you send, you think about messages, we tend to just kind of want to get past the greeting as fast as we can and into the good stuff. So, so one, probably the most common one that I receive and I write to others, this is what it is. Hey, so-and-so, hope all is well and we're off. And it's pretty unemotional, and if you think about it, it's just a little weird. Like, as I'm, like, I'm, I'm like, sending emails as I'm writing this sermon, let's hope all is well, and then we're off. I don't know what else to do, but I'm waiting for the person to write back, hey, Aaron, actually, all is not well, (laughs) but thank you for hoping that for me. (laughs) Pastor, I need some help. I need some help. But Paul's greetings were not indifferent. He was not just rushing to get to the good stuff. They were actually loaded. And, and maybe you've been in church around, you've heard that a lot. Oh, there's always a lot in the greetings. Um, but this morning, I want to show you why these are so important. So my longest outline point will be on the greeting. Because while Paul undoubtedly wrote the letter and was the primary author, he includes Timothy, which he does a few times in his letters. Paul and Timothy. Timothy was a young man in ministry, nowhere near the credibility as Paul at this point. Uh, He was a man Paul was mentoring who had joined Paul on his second missionary journey. But you find that Paul is a guy who is always okay with sharing the spotlight. He's always pulling others in, raising them up, and then sending them out. He's never power-hungry. And if anyone could be power-hungry, it's Paul. And so even there, just a word of application for us, like the church exists in the midst of a world where everyone wants to stand out. Isn't that our world in a nutshell? We just do what we can to stand out. We want the credit and we're jockeying for position and we want the affirmation and we want the praise. But the best leaders in God's eyes are the ones who are trying to elevate others, to raise them up. Paul and Timothy, he's here too, to empower them, to be for them, and then to release them with their own authority. And then beyond that, he refers to he and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus, which is a very lowly title. Um, You contrast this to some of the other letters. Again, like Corinth and Galatia, he introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, an authoritative title. And the reason he did that is that those letters were pretty confrontational right out of the gate, kind of calling out some sin, rebuking them, correcting them. And so he starts by affirming, hey, I'm an apostle. I have the authority for this. But the title of servants gives us insight to a couple of things. One, his relationship to Philippi. But two, to what kind of letter this is going to be. You can know already. He's not out to prove himself He's not boasting in himself. He's boasting in his service to Christ. That Greek word, "servant" it can also be translated slave. In the Greek culture, it's a negative connotation. You do not want to be a servant in Greek culture. And so it, it, it's, a, it's an insult almost. And Paul takes it and says, I'm proud to announce that this is a servant of Christ writing to you. This is what made me think of... Um, If you happened to be lucky enough to be plugged into the Christian rock scene in the 1990s, early 2000s, you'll recognize the band DC Talk. Just for my own enjoyment, how many people have one time owned a DC Talk CD? Do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. DC Talk, all right. Probably about 30%. Um, Ilya, we need to get that back. We need to incorporate that into the rotation. Well, one of their most popular songs was Jesus Freak. And the song basically sought to do the same thing, right? To be called a freak in the 90s, 2000s, that was not good, right? Nobody wanted to be called a freak, man. You're, and, 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 and yet they take it and they flip it on its head, and the song is, I'm a Jesus freak, and I'm proud of it. And so Paul and Timothy are the original Jesus freaks, yeah. and they are proud of it. And it's the earliest indication in this letter that this is not going to be maybe like some of the other letters he has written. We keep going in this greeting. He says, to all the saints. This is written to the entire church. This is meant to be um, read amongst the entire gathering. And he makes sure that this is, point is getting across because he says, all the saints with the overseers and the deacons. Those would be the leaders of the church, elders, overseers, deacons. And ironically, by adding that phrase with those guys, he kind of indicates it's not just for them. Not just writing to your leaders. I'm writing to all of you. All of you need to hear this. All of you can understand this. All of you can apply this. And um, again, you might hear the word saints and have different images in your mind based on your church background. So if you um, grew up in a background, I'd say especially like a Catholic background, you hear saints and you might be prone to think that's the elite Christians. Only certain people can go by that title. But biblically, um, saints is basically just another word for believers. Because the word literally means to be set apart by God which is true for anyone and everyone who God has drawn to himself, whom God has saved, that God has set you apart by saving you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so this is to all the saints, all the believers. And then the most common words associated with Paul's greetings, grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. If you're keeping account, count, we're two verses in. Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ has already been used three times. And I would just say this, get used to it. This letter elevates Christ. It points to Christ. It flows from Christ. It gives glory to Christ. It is the epitome of Christ-centered. And grace and peace. Why those words? A couple reasons. Um, Grace was the traditional greeting amongst Gentile Christians. And peace was the traditional greeting amongst Jewish Christians. So these early churches, one of their biggest obstacles they had to face was the fact that Jews and Gentiles were now worshiping together. And it caused a lot of tension, a lot of friction. Paul wrote about it a lot, how to alleviate these pressures, to not say, okay, go have your Gentile church, and then go have your Jewish church. No, he says he wants to encourage them together. And this is a subtle way, in the greeting, he says to both of them, grace and peace to you all. He's building unity within the body. A theme that we'll see in this letter. Um, but then just secondly, these words are foundational to the theology of salvation. That it is by grace you have been saved. It is by grace that Timothy and Paul have been saved. It is by grace that anyone has been saved. You're not saved by your works. You're saved for works. You're saved by grace. And I would say in 2019, that is still the most um, misguided view of Christianity in the church, is the idea of grace. Most people don't get it it's by grace that christians are saved not because they're so great it's because god is great and god is gracious it's grace-based salvation grace grace it's like someone should name a church after that (laughs) and in their wisdom our church is coming on about in a couple years we're gonna turn 75 as a church That in 1947, people got together and said, what are we going to name this little gathering that started in the living room in Ridgewood? Let's keep it simple. Grace Church. Grace. It's all about grace. And Paul and Timothy were both recipients of this same grace. But here's the thing, it looked a lot different. Another reason why I think Paul kind of included Timothy in the greeting is that Paul was a Pharisee who was actively persecuting Christians, trying to kidnap them, gladly looking on as they got stoned and killed. That was the life he was living when Jesus appeared to him and saved him as an adult. And his life took a 180 turn because of grace. And then Timothy, you remember Timothy's story? In one of Paul's letters to him, he kind of recounts how Timothy was saved. He was raised in a Christian home. God bestowed his grace on him through the faith of his mother and his grandmother who taught him the scriptures and raised them in the truth. Two stories, two radically different paths and the same grace. A few weeks ago, uh, you know, we, we welcomed in about 23 members last week and, and we do these membership interviews when somebody applies and they just meet with the elders to tell us their story. And it's really one of the best parts about being a pastor is being able to hear the stories of how God saves them and how in one couple we had, and they both had a similar story, where in college God saved them. They grew with some kind of vague knowledge of God but never really believed, but they got to college and God wound their paths together. First the woman who then led her would-be husband to Christ as adults to understand grace. And then the next couple who came in One was saved at age six, one was saved at age five, raised in Christian homes. Parents taught them the scriptures. Parents raised them the truth. Like, that's our prayer for a hundred kids downstairs and down the hall. that God would just save them by his grace through the faith of their families. Two different paths, same grace. And then grace that leads to peace. You can only experience true peace in this world if it's by God's grace. So church, do not overlook to the greetings. They are packed. Paul does not say, hey, church, hope all is well. It's not what he does, and thank you, Lord, that he doesn't. Let's keep going. Verses 3 through 6. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Number two, Paul's gratitude. Again, if you scanned Paul's letters, you'd see a similar formula. He gives the initial greeting, and then he gives a kind of time of thanksgiving as an extended greeting to give thanks for the church he is writing to. He would even say that to the ones that he's about to forcibly rebuke, right? Because he's even thankful for just even the the little bit of faith that they're showing and displaying. But you notice with Philippi, the language is a little different. There's something a little more affectionate here, because when you read closely you notice his choice of words. He says, "I thank my God in all my remembrance, in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy." It's a little different. And an important part of this letter as we unpack it over 9 weeks is the grasp that Paul has a fierce love for these people. It pops off the page. But one thing you find about Paul's gratitude throughout his letters is that he rarely, if ever, thanked God for things. Doesn't mean he wasn't thankful for things, but he never really wrote about it. He's always thanking God for people. He was relationally grateful through and through that just people had an elevated place in his mind and his heart compared to just stuff. Stuff. And yet, he's not having an over-romanticized version of these relationships. He knows they're messy. All relationships are messy, especially those in the church. where a bunch of sinners doing life together, and that can get messy. And we see it even in the book of Acts, which kind of chronicles the start of the church. Wow, he had disagreements with people, and they had to part ways because they just, just couldn't travel together anymore. He talks about men who have abandoned him in 2 Timothy when he's writing to Timothy at the end of his life, men who have just left him, deserted him, and it hurt. People caused him a lot of pain. And yet, he's always putting forth relationships are worth it, especially in the church. They're hard and they're messy and there's a lot of sin, but they are so worth it because it makes you vulnerable and exposed. And yet God's grace works through us and through others in those relationships to the point where if by God's grace we live until old age and we are laying on our deathbed and we have the time and the clarity of mind to look back on our life, what are we thankful for? We're all going to be thinking about people. Not the new three wood I got this last summer. I'm, I'm grateful for that three wood. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It still goes that way. But like, <laughs> ultimately it's people. They're going to leave the deepest impression, the deepest gratitude. Stuff is going to come and it's going to go, and everything we own is going to be in a junkyard soon. But people, that's who he wants to be thankful for. And Paul is just overflowing with thankfulness for this community of believers. Um, and, and it's interesting. We don't know a lot about the Church of Philippi throughout our Bible. But we do know how it started. We know its first three members of the church If you go to Acts 16, you'll have to go there now, but I would encourage you to read it maybe later today. Um, Luke records Paul's trip into the church, into the city at Philippi. It occurred during his second missionary journey, which he originally planned when he set out. He was originally just going to retrace the steps of his first journey and just go back to those churches and strengthen them and encourage them. Um, But what happens is Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit kept him from doing that. Start closing doors, literally closing roads, and having to divert where they were going all along their way, blocking their path. And then Paul gets this vision of a man saying, "Come to Macedonia, and help us." And he follows this vision to go to the region of Macedonia, setting sail from Asia to Europe, and then walking inland to the city of Philippi. We have a map. It's not a great map, but it's a map. Um, Starting in the bottom right, that is Asia. It's the first time the gospel goes to Europe in his second missionary journey. Crosses the sea, lands at that city I can't pronounce, and then they go on a journey up middle center up to this city of Philippi. Here's the thing about Philippi. Not a really large city. Not a ton going on there. It's not Ephesus. It's not Corinth. But it would be the first place in Europe where the gospel would be preached and a church would be planted. And so just as an aside here, there's just encouragement for us in this. Paul thought he was going to be going one way and the Lord diverted his path. Which I assume for Paul was discouraging at first. Not the plan. And I know there's several in here, maybe many in here, some of which I know about your story, others you don't. But if you had to sum up life right now, you'd say, I didn't think I was going to be here. I thought I would be somewhere else by now. Whether that's a physical location, I just didn't want to be here, I'm here, I don't want to be here. Or it's a, it's a season of your life, I, thought I'd, be so, I just thought I'd be a little further along. I thought I'd be in a different stage. I just didn't think I'd be here right now. And for others, that you are where you are right now, and just, you're just giving God glory for that. But a year from now, you might not be there. You might be somewhere else. And either way, just encouragement for us, be where you are when you are. God does not make mistakes. And God will carve out a path even when we're confused, even when we're discouraged, even if we're just like, I thought I was going to be somewhere else to just find encouragement that where you are right now is exactly where God has you. And there's work to be done where you are. I'm not saying pursue a different path. I'm not saying not to pursue a different path. But I'm saying you are where you are. And God can use you right now where you are when you are. But if you were to read Acts chapter 16, it tells the story again of these first three members of the church of Philippi. It's two women and one man. Um, When Paul enters a city, he typically starts at a synagogue to teach there and then branches out to the rest of the city. But there was no synagogue here in Philippi because it was a small city and there was not even a big enough of a Jewish population to have one. So it's primarily Gentile. And the first woman he comes across is a woman named Lydia, who's a wildly successful businesswoman. Luke just tells us in Acts that she's a seller of purple goods. Take that what you will, but she was good at it, okay? And we find that she was kind of God-fearing, but misguided, didn't really know. And she was leading this women's group down by the river, and they engage Paul and Timothy, and they hear the gospel, and by God's grace, they believe, and they're all baptized, and then they go back and stay at Lydia's home, who apparently has a large home, because most commentators believe the church of Philippi met in this home. It's the first member, second member. We do not know her name, but Luke identifies her as a demon-possessed slave girl who had owners that used whatever power she conjured up to practice fortune-telling, and she was like a cash cow for them. Made them a lot of money. And she's following Paul in the streets, kind of um, pestering him, mocking him, and Paul just has enough, turns around and exercises the demon on the spot. And her owners are ticked. Why? Because their moneymaker is now not possessed anymore. And so they cause up a stirring. They get the town to turn against these two guys who are here doing strange things, get them thrown into prison. So if you're tracking, we have Lydia. We have a not anymore demon-possessed slave girl. And now they're in jail. And of course, because he's Paul, he's singing hymns while in jail all night. And then an earthquake comes and opens the doors of the jail. So all the prisoners could go free. And there's a Roman jailer who's on duty, sees this happens, assumes they're all going to leave. It's going to be on my watch. And so he proceeds to draw his sword and prepare to take his own life. And Paul goes, whoa, 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 from inside the jail cell. He goes, buddy, settle down. We're all still here. Don't hurt yourself. And the jailer, uh, knowing their faith because he listened to them sing all night, goes, Okay, what do I got to do to be saved? How are you going to act like that unless that's not real? I want want what you got. What do I do to be saved? And Paul says, Brother, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. And he gets baptized. Read chapter 16. Read Acts 16 later. Your Bible is awesome. It needs to be read and with that the authorities of the city are all kinds of freaked out now and they deport paul and his crew out of the city but the church has started you have lydia you have a former demon-possessed slave and you have a duty-bound jailer how good is our god how weird was that first members meeting they had But by God's grace, this church was planted, and it begins to grow, and they appoint their own elders and deacons, and this is the group that Paul is writing to, and he loves them with such gratitude and joy because they are evidence of a sovereign, all-knowing God who will not lose. And he's grateful for them because of, quote, your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, if we had a subtitle for this whole series, that would be it. Partnership in the gospel. Some of your translations might say fellowship in the gospel. But I love the phrase partnership because of just the the meaning it reveals. That, That Paul is not lording over this church in any way. He's not creating a hierarchy of super Christians and all you common folk. There are no gaps. He says we are all partners in the gospel together. And when we think in our modern minds about the status of partner, we often think in kind of corporate terms. We think of law firms. Uh, If you were to right now Google, what's it mean to be a partner in a law firm? You'll read this. Making partner in a law firm means no longer working for the partnership as an employee, but becoming one of the owners of it. Thus, sharing in the profits and the risks. What a word picture to apply to the church. That, brothers and sisters, for all who are in Christ, you are invited to be partners in the gospel. This is the status Christ gives you when he died for you, and by faith you believed in him that we are partners, we become owners, we are all sharing in the profits and the risks. Lydia, partner in the gospel. Slave girl, partner in the gospel. Roman jailer, partner in the gospel, welcome to the church of Philippi. Welcome to Grace Church. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. And then verse 6. Might be one of, if not the best, verses in the Bible to memorize. It's a verse of assurance that we need day in and day out. I'll read it again. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In all seriousness, one of the reasons I want to preach through the book of Philippians is because it seems now more than ever we are in such an anxious age and there's nothing more in our church body that we struggle more with than anxiety. And that's not condemning, that's just telling us of what the reality of our day right now. And if you are struggling with anxiety, know that you are not alone in this church and not by a long shot. And when I'm meeting with and encouraging members of Grace Church week in and week out, I quote this verse on average once every other day. And then how I explain this verse is this, that that same grace that saved you It's the same grace that will sustain you. That by grace we are justified and by grace we will be sanctified and when it comes to the work of salvation, God begins and God continues and God's going to complete. And that salvation belongs to the Lord. Underline this verse in your Bible. Put it on the background of your phone, hang it over your bed, tattoo it on your leg. remember Philippians 1.6 because your eternity is not bound in the strength of your faith. It's wrapped up in the strength of your God. Well, you guys know my tendencies by now. My first two points are longer. I promise my last two will be shorter. Let's go. Verses 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I hold you in my heart, for you, are all, you, for you are all partakers of me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Number three, Paul's joy. And I say this point will be shorter, not because it's less important, but because the concept of joy will be the most repeated theme throughout this letter and throughout our nine weeks. In four short chapters, Paul will speak of joy or rejoicing 16 times. Like, you can't miss it just reading it, but also you can't miss it just thinking about it because what we just found out in verse 7 is that Paul is writing this from prison. And yet it is so gratitude-packed, it is joy-filled, and it's being written by an inmate who has been jailed for preaching the gospel— And this will get unpacked further in next week's passage. He'll kind of tell about his situation some more. But here's the headline point in bold letters from Paul. Joy is not contingent on circumstance. I've preached about this before, but we are going to see again on repeat that there is a difference between joy and happiness for the believer of Jesus Christ. Our world treats them as synonyms. They're related, but they are very distinct. Happiness is contingent on circumstances. Joy is not for the believer in Christ. And the reason, hear me, the reason is because joy is an attitude and happiness is an emotion. Paul can and will command joy in the lives of believers because it's an attitude we choose This fallen world can take our happiness. It can take it very fast, but this world cannot have our joy. And Grace Church, just know that your joy is not for sale. Do you know that? It's no one else's to take from you because it is yours in Christ Jesus until the end because he began and he's going to continue and he'll complete it. And if that sounds foreign to you, like that just sounds unrealistic or mystical or just far-fetched, like how can you be joyful in suffering? It doesn't make sense. It's wrong. Brother, sister, I'm just glad you're here. I encourage you to keep coming for this series because God has a word for you. We're going to talk a lot about joy. And something I will always remember from a child is an acronym of J-O-Y, that I'll never forget. And it is corny. And you know what? The corny things stick, so we got to deal with it. <laughs> I'm sure many of you have heard this too. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, you. This is the recipe for joy, in that order. It's not that you think low of yourself, but you think of Jesus and others first. So do you lack Jesus You're going to struggle with joy. Do you lack gospel partnership with others? You're going to struggle with joy. Do you just focus on yourself and block everything else out and it's just you and you and all about you? Guys, you're going to struggle with joy. But with this recipe, you will have joy and you will have joy to the full. All right, let's finish this passage. Verses 9 through 11. These verses, 9 through 11, you could probably say they serve as the thesis for the rest of the letter. This is his prayer for the church. This is his hope for the church. And everything that comes after it is going to point back to this prayer and this hope. That their love may abound more and more. Uh, One commentator noticed that Paul did not add an object to the command to love. Do you notice that? He doesn't say love blank. He just says love more and more. And the reason is because our love is a package deal. A church's love for God will spill over to a love for one another. They are two in one. A church that loves God will love one another. It's going to be messy, but it's going to be a messy, good kind of love. And to put it negatively, a lack of love for one another in the church exposes a lack of love for God. It's a package deal. It makes me recall Jesus' letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. He starts out by praising them for their doctrine. He goes, you guys believe the right things. You got it down. You're even defending it well, driving out false teachers. But then this, Revelation 2, 4. But I have this against you, that you abandoned the love you had at first. People will often ask, What kind of love is Jesus talking about there? I think it's the same as Philippians 1. I think it's a package deal. They lost their love for God. They knew about him. They knew the doctrine. But they stopped loving that which they knew. And that spilled over to a lack of love for one another. And it was so serious that Jesus made a point to tell them, Guys, if you don't repent of that, I'm going to turn off your light. So by God's grace, the church at Philippi is not like Ephesus at this point. They are demonstrating this love. So Paul wants to be the wind behind their sails. He goes, guys, you're doing great. Keep it up. Keep going more and more. Keep loving with knowledge and discernment. In order to love God truly, we need to know God rightly. If you've been around our church for a while, this statement won't surprise you, but theology matters. Right belief matters. It's not relative based on your truth or my truth. There's just truth. And a right view of God matters. And that alone will not transform you. Just knowing the right answers won't transform you. But knowledge is required for true transformation. It's a key part. We talked about last week in our vision series, you cannot separate mind and heart. You, You don't have to choose one. It's both that we think about God and we dwell upon God and we engage our minds and that is the fuel for the motion of our hearts. And then discernment. Love with discernment. It's interesting, it's the only time in the New Testament that Greek word is used. But it's found 22 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know where which book it's found in all 22 times? The book of Proverbs that we just spent nine weeks in over the summer. And another translation for discernment could be practical wisdom or even common sense. So get what Paul is saying. He's saying grow in your love with knowledge and common sense. Practical wisdom. It's a great marriage of qualities. And from here, we're going to see week after week, God growing us through the words of Paul, growing us in our love for God, love for one another, and by doing so through increased knowledge and giving us the ability to practically live this out before others, that we might be, in his own words, filled with the fruit of righteousness as we approach the final day. Two times in 11 verses, Paul talks about the last day. We are called to live in this world but with an eye on the finish line. And this life is a journey and we all know it and it's always two steps forward, one step back and we're all journeying but we're journeying towards a finish line at the day of Christ. And it's a sure ending and it's a day that those who place their faith in Christ are assured to see because he will bring us to that day of completion. And as we close, the ending of paul's introduction is all too fitting based upon our vision series that he finishes it the cap of it is to the glory and to the praise of god let's pray